From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, April 6th. I'm Marco Werman. Twenty years after the war in Bosnia began, Sarajevo grieves its dead. It was very, very moving to see these empty red chairs, especially the small chairs. For the children, there were tiny little red plastic chairs. We remember the siege that killed more than 11,000 in Sarajevo, and later support for the uprising in Syria from a Syrian-American who'd given up on change. Hope for change in Syria, I will confess, was something that I had despaired of. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. And by WGBH, producer of NOVA with Deadliest Tornadoes. Scientists are striving to understand the forces at work behind last year's most extreme tornado outbreak in decades. Wednesday, April 11th at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It was 20 years ago this week that the siege of Sarajevo began. In early April 1992, a crowd gathered for a peaceful demonstration in the Bosnian capital when Serbian snipers and militiamen opened fire on the crowd. The attack set off a siege that would last for almost four years. Today, crowds gathered again in Sarajevo to remember. A memorial concert took place to mark the 20th anniversary of the start of Bosnia's civil war. Facing the outdoor stage, there was a line of more than 11,000 empty red chairs, one for every person killed during the siege of Sarajevo by Serb forces. The siege was one of the most brutal episodes of the wars that accompanied the breakup of Yugoslavia. For those four years in the early 1990s, the Bosnian capital suffered continuous shelling and sniper attacks. Reporter Barbara Demick spent two years in Sarajevo charting the lives of its residents. She published a book about her experience. Today, she's back in Sarajevo. Barbara, were you at that memorial concert today? Yes, I was. What was the mood? What was the ambiance there like? People were very sad. This, I think, yanked Sarajevans out of their daily lives. People were surprised. There has not been a big memorial. In fact, there's not been any kind of memorial in the 20 years since this war began. I spoke to earlier today to Harris Pasevich, who was the director, and he said we needed a catharsis. We needed an opportunity to cry. I feel often in Sarajevo that people are in a state of denial, that the war was so awful. It was such a betrayal by the neighbors, and they just can't contemplate it. They don't want to think about it. It was very, very moving to see these empty red chairs, especially the small chairs for the children. There were tiny little red plastic chairs, and people put teddy bears and um, little toy trucks on them, and and that was very moving. The Serbs uh, did not take part uh, in in the anniversary today. Uh, What do you think that says about reunification? 
this is not their commemoration. This was the, the day that Bosnia was born. It was the day the war started. And of course, they also suffered. But their feeling of victimhood is is mixed with um, guilt. And it's something that I think people have not gotten beyond. They haven't accepted what they've done. They haven't apologized. And that makes it very difficult to move on. Take us back to that time 20 years ago. What, what do you remember most? I mean, just the real tactile kind of stuff that sticks in your mind. I think I remember the fear when you went outside, when you walked on an open street, it was like somebody was about to shoot you. There was this this constant tension in your back, in your neck. I remember the cold. I remember there was not very much food, no water, no electricity. I remember some of the good, too. I remember the way the people survive this siege with you know great dignity and neighborliness i mean that's really what i wrote about how people supported each other across the ethnic groups elaborate a bit more on that because i mean it, it was your interchange with the residents of sarajevo that led you to to write your book logovina street what 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 was it in their character that that so struck you what amazed me at the time as an American and having been raised on the stories of how we put the Japanese in internment camps during World War II was the relationship between the ethnic groups in Sarajevo. On my street, Lagavina Street, was mostly Muslim, but there were a lot of Serbs, including some elderly Serbs whose sons were fighting on the other side. People would actually um, still take care of these old people, bring them bread, bring them water, bring them firewood. That amazed me. I think a lot of that is gone now in Sarajevo. There's, there's, you know, to be honest, there's a lot of tension here, but there was something very, very special in this city. Right. Well, that, precisely. I mean, that multi-ethnic quality of Sarajevo, it it's kind of lives in the, in the legacy of the city today. Uh, it's a bureaucratic nightmare this time around with power shared uneasily between Serbs, Croats, and Muslims uh, in a state ruled by ethnic quotas? I mean, what is life like now for the people you profiled 20 years ago living in this reality? You know, the, the big problem is the economy. Unemployment here is even by the terrible standards of Southern Europe, over 40%. And I hear the same thing I heard during the war, Nemanishta, Nemanishta, there's no nothing. Um, the job situation is very bleak, and it could get bleaker because uh, Croatia is about to join the European Union, and that leaves Bosnia, this black hole in the middle of Europe. You know, as you mentioned, there there are 14 different governments in Bosnia. The Dayton peace structure is very clunky. <laughs> you don't know who to blame, but it's very hard for them to get themselves going and to get anything fixed. Now, the United Nations sent peacekeepers uh, into Sarajevo, but I'm just wondering what you think the lessons uh, of that international engagement in Sarajevo were, uh, especially today. You know, we've been talking about Bosnia in the context of Syria. When you or we as a journalist are here and you see snipers shooting children, and this is what we saw from the holiday and we saw it all the time, Mm. you know, there's an obligation to help and I think, um, you know, Clinton said it very well, Bill Clinton, that you, you can't stop all wars all the time. You can't save all people. But when you can, you have to. And that's certainly what we felt in Sarajevo for outsiders. 
this was a very complicated conflict, you know, ancient Balkan hatreds, blah, 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 blah. But when you were here, basically you saw people with guns, men with guns attacking unarmed civilians, and it was pretty simple. Reporter Barbara Demick speaking with us from Sarajevo. Her book is called Lugavina Street, Life and Death in a Sarajevo Neighborhood. Barbara, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. The United Nations estimates that the uprising in Syria has now claimed more than 9,000 lives. Unlike the war in Bosnia, the Syrian conflict has been mostly off-limits for outside reporters. So Syrian citizens have brandished cell phone cameras to video scenes of protests and fighting. Some call it the YouTube revolution. Among the most avid viewers are Syrians here in the United States. Reporter Michael May of LatitudeNews.com has a story of one woman who'd long given up on change in her native country. For Moja Kaf, the YouTube revolution began at home, but it was a long time coming. Moja is a poet and a professor at the University of Arkansas. She fled Syria with her family in 1971. She was just a toddler. Her father was a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, and after he left, the government made being a member of the organization punishable by death. Moja rejected her father's Islamist politics, but she'd long given up on returning to her birthplace. Hope for change in Syria, I will confess, was something that I had despaired of. That changed in February 2011. Egyptians were filling Tahrir Square and demanding change. Moja's 17-year-old daughter, Bana, went into her room, set up a video camera, invented the frustration of a second-generation exile. I am a Syrian girl who has never been to Syria thanks to Assad's oppressive 40-year dictatorship. My grandfather spent 10 years trying to build a house brick by brick for us to live in in Syria. I was delighted and proud of her, but we posted it as anonymous. Didn't want her to be put in danger of reprisal by the regime, which, you know, has a long arm. The video has now been viewed almost 30,000 times. Back then, there was little reason to hope the Arab Spring would spread to Syria. But three weeks later, Moshe saw a video of something she thought she'd never see, a protest in the heart of Damascus, Syrians openly supporting the revolution in Libya. Around second 25 or 26, there's a close-up on three women with their long black hair around their shoulders, And tears are just pouring down their face. And security men are just meters away from them. And you can just sort of see that they are scared to death and they are so brave. They are just singing right through their fear. That was a new Syria being born right there, changing shape right in front of me as they they sang. Then came Syria's own uprising. We are glued every day to every new video coming out on YouTube from Syria. There was the one day when it was raining. Rain in the Middle East is a rare occurrence. And this young guy says, you know, because he's dying and and people around him are, are upset. And he says, no, it's okay. It's worth it to have lived these last four days free. These last four days have been the most beautiful of my life. Moshe began a campaign to get her friends and family here to support the uprising. A lot of Syrian exiles she knew wanted nothing to do with revolution. They were comfortable with their lives here. But the video shook many of them out of their complacency. Moshe says she couldn't sit on the sidelines. 
She made her own YouTube video, but she really wanted to get as close as she could to Syria to see things for herself. So she gathered together a small group of friends and family members, including her daughter, and they bought tickets for Turkey. By that time, there was a flood of refugees, and it just seemed like the thing to do was go and try to help the refugees. So we went. Moshe was there with her brother-in-law, a well-known Syrian activist. They visited refugee camps and met with wounded protesters. She and her daughter posted reports on Facebook and Twitter, and they started to attract attention. Her brother-in-law was told by smugglers that the Syrian government was offering a million-dollar bounty for himself and Moshe and her daughter. She says they began to get phone calls from strangers claiming to be dissidents, demanding to meet them. But the thing about that is, is that I didn't want to flee because this is why my parents left, for us not to be afraid. But also, I mean, think about when it's necessary to take a risk and why. And also, I'm not risking myself, I'm risking my daughter here. And her position on this was that we should leave. Moshe and her daughter are back in Arkansas now, with her computers tuned to Syria. She watched the assault on homes on a live video feed. You could hear daybreak, you could hear the rooster crowing, and you could see the smoke billowing from the shelling that was going on in the city. And it just accompanied me as I woke up, got my kid ready for school, moved about the house. It was painful, but I didn't want to not have the open window of pain. Moja says she'll keep open that window of pain no matter what. She's seen what happened in post-revolution Egypt. She knows that even if the uprising in Syria succeeds, it's possible the new government won't reflect her secular American worldview. But she says she's okay with that. Her greatest hope is that one day the images beaming out of Syria will show free and open debate, not torture and bloodshed. For The World and Latitude News, I'm Michael May. Producer Jack Rodolico contributed to this story. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands-on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters, available to classrooms and families at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Students at Oikos University in Oakland, California, are still waiting for their classes to resume. A lone gunman killed seven people there on Monday, and police are still collecting evidence. Though it's called a university, Oikos does not have a large campus. In fact, it's part of an industry of small private colleges that can often go unnoticed. Many of the students are immigrants looking for a professional foothold in the U.S., Reporter Monica Campbell visited another such school in California. It's a Tuesday afternoon, and inside of BioHealth College in San Jose, California, there's a crash course in chemistry. Now, today we're going to talk about chemical changes. It's a small class of 11 students, and nearly all are immigrants from Egypt, Korea, Afghanistan, and Mexico. And while the school's name is BioHealth College... It's hardly a sprawling campus, rather a series of small classrooms tucked in an office park in Silicon Valley. And it's one of hundreds of small, private, and for-profit trade schools in California and throughout the U.S. You might pass them by without noticing in nondescript office buildings like this one or in strip malls. But for students like Vinod Dahal, who immigrated here about a year ago from Nepal, 
They represent a possible professional lifeline. My background is a laboratory chemist, and I thought if I took this class, it will help me for the future to get the good job. He also feels supported being in the same room with people like him. It's very helpful for a person to get relief from the loneliness. I'm with family, but only me, wife, and my children. This place is very nice for the newcomers. BioHealth College focuses on certificates needed to work at, say, a pharmacy to be able to dispense medicine or as a bookkeeper. Other schools like it offer certificates in everything from forensic accounting to interior design. In California alone, some 400,000 students attend schools like this, and it's a growing industry, fueled both by laid-off workers looking for a jump start to newcomers, immigrants, willing to put down cash for a leg up in the U.S. Sam Shirazi, president of BioHealth College and a native of Iran, makes his pitch. I use myself as an example. I'm immigrant to the United States 30 years ago. I came and started my career just like them. Things are difficult, but we are also in the same battle together, battle of life. And uh, there is a reason everybody's here, and the reason is just succeeding, being somebody. Shirazi is also a charismatic leader here. He teaches a motivational class and tries to get students, especially non-native English speakers, to speak up and not be worried about their accents. I had this gentleman from Africa. His English was very good when he wrote it, very good understanding it, but it's very difficult talking. And I just made him repeat things loud and say, like, I want a job, you know. And stand there and tell me. He said, what do you mean? Yell. Just yell from the bottom of your heart. You want a job. And then he said, well, I want a job. I said, no, say it again. And, you know, you know I try to encourage them that fear puts you always where you are. You don't grow if you don't get rid of the fear. But education analysts warn buyers to beware. These schools' credentials can be fuzzy. California regulators recently shut down a private vocational school called the Institute of Medical Education for bogus training programs that cost up to $40,000. BioHealth College's certificates are cheaper at about $10,000. A large percentage of students at these schools take out loans, and that presents other problems, says Lauren Asher. She heads the Institute for College Access and Success, a watchdog group. Students at for-profit schools are much more likely to have loans, more likely to have risky private loans, and more likely to default on their federal loans than students at other types of schools. You may end up borrowing for something uh, that doesn't enable you to pay off that debt. Student Hazel Bautista, 27 years old, moved here from the Philippines six years ago. She says she checked, and the $11,000 certificate she's getting from BioHealth College is what she needs for a promotion at a biotech firm in Silicon Valley. But she's still unclear about the exact financial risks she's taking. It's my first time to get an education over here. They applied me to a grant, and then... um, Um, The balance, I'm going to pay, like, out of my pocket. Bautista hopes to avoid any financial burden and expects her certificate to generate a raise, although she's not sure when that might happen or how much it might be. For The World, I'm Monica Campbell in San Jose, California.
Three travelers who ran into trouble in Argentina also face an uncertain future. One man is a British university professor who teaches at the University of North Carolina. The other two are women, one American, the other from New Zealand. Three separate cases, but similar stories. Each was arrested in Buenos Aires with cocaine hidden in his or her luggage. All claim they were duped into carrying the illegal shipment. Reporter Ian Mount in Buenos Aires explains the connection between the cases. All three of these people were lured down to Buenos Aires by people they met on the web and fell in love with on internet chats and whatnot, and ended up not meeting these people while they were down here, but were asked to pick up something for them and bring it back either to the U.S. or to the U.K. And there's no dispute that the drugs uh, were found with them. The question is how the drugs got there. Is that right? That's right. All three claim that someone planted the drugs on them. Um, In the professor's case, it was uh, two kilos of cocaine. In the American nurse's case, uh, Catherine Blackhawk, it was four kilos. All three claim that they had no idea the drugs were there. Is there any reason to suspect that all three are not telling the truth and uh, just happen to have the same kind of excuse that they were lured down to Argentina, that they were, in fact, uh, bringing drugs back? None of them have any precedence in terms of drug smuggling convictions or drug convictions at all. It appears that their their common thread is that they were incredibly gullible. Is the link more than just the way these people were allegedly duped? I mean, is there a particular gang or kingpin suspect behind this? Well, there are several things that link them that suggest that it, at least with two of the cases, the same gang did it. Both of the women, Sharon Armstrong, the... the New Zealand woman and uh, Catherine Blackhawk, the American nurse, met with a woman named Esperanza and while they were here, who was supposedly a representative of the man that they were dating online but had never met. And in both cases, they were given something by Esperanza to bring back. Um, in Catherine Blackhawk's case, it was supposedly some inheritance papers for the man she was supposed to meet after leaving Buenos Aires for London. And in Sharon Armstrong's case, it was supposedly mining company secrets. And in that case, uh, the woman Esperanza pretended to be a mining company employee. And they also both had their tickets paid for and both stayed at the same hotel. Ian, are the courts in Argentina at all sympathetic to cases of deception like this, if indeed that is what happened, or are they likely to make an example of it? Well, the first person who was arrested, Sharon Armstrong from New Zealand, was arrested last April 2011, and she's already been convicted and given four years and 10 months, even though the courts seem to have accepted that it might have been a trap. I think because the smuggling problem has gotten so large here in Argentina, the courts are a little less than eager to listen to excuses like these and a little doubtful that they're true. Reporter Ian Mount in Buenos Aires, thanks very much. Thank you. I'm Marco Werman. Spring is starting earlier and earlier in many parts of the globe. Nice for us humans, maybe. Yeah, why worry? That's a question most asked. You have to look at the bigger picture. Many of these species will be lost. How changing seasons could endanger the survival of many plants and animals. That's coming up on The World. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. If you've noticed that the cherry tree in your yard or your daffodils are blooming a little earlier than they used to, well, you're not alone. That unprecedented March heat wave jump-started spring across much of the U.S., Extreme as it was, the premature blast of heat was part of a more subtle global trend. As the planet warms up, spring has been coming earlier and earlier in many places. That might seem like a welcome change, but scientists who track seasonal events say there can be a big downside to the shifting seasons. The world's Clark Boyd has more from the Netherlands. Biologist Arnold van Fleet walks me through a small park at Wageningen University in the Netherlands and points out the signs of spring that are all around. This is a prunus species with very nice white flowers. Over there, hazel is also unfolding its leaves. It's a lovely sight on a beautiful spring day. The only problem is, these flowers really shouldn't be here yet. And everything is now two to three weeks ahead of schedule. Butterflies are appearing very early, extremely early. And because of the very warm uh, March we had. But a warm March here isn't that much of an anomaly these days. Von Fleet says spring is regularly coming weeks earlier than it used to in the Netherlands. In fact, he says, Dutch temperatures are on the rise, and the whole climate of the country has shifted to become more like one of its neighbors to the south. Uh, we are close to southern France now, Lyon region, uh, the Provence uh, in the Netherlands uh, the past 10 years. Van Fleet has been following this shift for more than a decade, as head of an effort here called Nature's Calendar. He enlists the help of more than 8,000 people, a mix of scientists and ordinary Dutch citizens, to track changes in the seasons through what's known as phenology. That's an old-fashioned word for the study of the timing of seasonal life cycle events, such as the first flowering of a particular plant, or when a species of bird first lays its eggs in the spring. People who work close to nature have been tracking this kind of data for centuries. But environmental scientists in the Netherlands and elsewhere are more concerned about it than ever because the shifting of the seasons is having real environmental effects. We see that the length of our growing season is already one month longer than it was before 1988 when the temperature started to increase here. We see already an enormous change in the species diversity in the Netherlands. Very many Southern species that live in Belgium, France, or even more to the south, appear in the Netherlands. And uh, the more cold-loving species are significantly decreasing. And the Dutch aren't alone. Scientists around the world are seeing a similar trend. Spring is coming earlier and earlier. Jake Weltzien is an ecologist with the U.S. Geological Survey in Tucson, Arizona, and coordinator of the USA National Phenology Network. He says this year, for instance, U.S. data shows that maple sap started running earlier, and species as different as butterflies and horseshoe crabs turned up earlier as well. Weltzien says that many plants and animals can adapt to earlier springs, but what's really important, he says, is how these shifts in timing can affect an entire landscape. We're starting to get a handle on that. It's a complex system. Among other things, Weltzin notes, there's more potential for what he calls mismatches in an ecosystem. If you have, say, a plant and an animal, and the animal depends on that plant for nectar or food, and if the plants that are coming early and the animals are arriving at the same time, you can end up with this mismatch. So there may not be enough pollination. There may not be enough food. There may not be any milkweed for the monarch butterflies. In some cases, these mismatches that are coming with the shifting seasons could even affect food crops for people. 
Weltzine says what's needed to better understand these trends and changing relationships is greater cooperation and data sharing among national phonology networks. Shell Bomgren directs Sweden's phonology network. He says the data suggests that spring is coming a week earlier there than it used to. But Balmgren notes that isn't necessarily bad news for all of Sweden's plants and animals. My prediction would be that most organisms in Sweden would benefit from the improved growing conditions, simply because the difficult part in Sweden is the winter. So once that gets shorter, uh, it's going to be easier for most plants. It also means a longer growing season in Sweden. But Balmgren cautions that the Swedish summer might get so long that drought becomes a problem. There's also no guarantee that important parts of Sweden's ecosystems won't get out of whack. Back at Wageningen University, Arnold von Fleet tells me he's already seeing winners and losers in the Netherlands. Plants and insects seem to be adapting fairly quickly to the earlier Dutch springs. Migratory birds, however, do not seem to be getting the clue to come back sooner. And that could mean trouble for some ecological relationships. Still, I ask him, what's the big worry about all this? Yeah, why worry? That's a question most asked. You have to look at the bigger picture. And if you look on a global scale, 40% to 50% of all the plants and animal species are located on only 2% of the Earth's surface. If 50% of all the plants and animal species are in danger because of they are located in a climate zone that they are not used to, then I think we have a major issue there. Many of these species will be lost. Van Fleet says the trick to driving home the importance of phenological data and what it's telling us about the impacts of climate change is to enlist the help of the public. He set up websites, for instance, where citizens can help scientists track the tiniest changes in nature, things like the time and place of new hay fever symptoms or tick bites, even the number of bugs smashed on a license plate after a summer drive. They could all contain clues about how local environments are changing as the world warms up and the seasons continue to shift. For The World, this is Clark Boyd, Wageningen, the Netherlands. You might be surprised at the practical value of those Dutch citizen science projects tracking the shifting seasons. Clark Boyd certainly was. He writes about it in his latest blog post at theworld.org. It's still chaos in Mali after a military coup there last month. Today, Tuareg rebels in the north of the West African country declared their independence. They call their new nation Azawad. But the U.S. and a host of other nations quickly rejected the proclamation. Scott Stewart is an analyst with the global intelligence firm Stratfor. He says the Tuareg rebels were able to seize control of Mali's north thanks to an influx of weapons from Libya. With the fall of the Gaddafi regime, basically their arms stores were were thrown open. And this allowed these Tuaregs who had been fighting for Colonel Gaddafi to leave the country with not only vehicles, but a lot of heavy weapons. How concerned do you think the U.S. State Department is by this development? I mean, the U.S. has been active in the Sahel, in northern Mali, and keeping an eye on on these areas. Yes, certainly. Uh, you know, the U.S. government uh, was working very close with the uh, the Malian government and, and helping to train some of their elite Red Beret units that have been used against al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb and other extremists in the region. And now the fact that the, the military is basically imploded and disintegrated has to be a very big cause for concern. And of course, it, it's opened up a big vacuum in the northern Mali. And so now there's going to be a question of, you know, can the MNLA – 
and the more That's secularist the Tuareg rebel group. Yes, yeah. uh, the, the main Tuareg rebel group. Can the MNLA keep these jihadist and, and more radical elements under control or not? They claim that they can and they will, but I'm sure there's going to be a lot of apprehension by, by the French and, and the Americans and others as to whether this can happen or not. And why do you think that concern is there uh, among the Americans and the French? I mean, this is not a very densely populated area. It's really hard to get around. It's not the best place, really, for militants to grow, it seems. Inversely, the, the Sahel region has been a, a very good place for AQIM, al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, to prosper. Uh, they've been able to conduct training camps uh, or have training camps in the area. Of course, now with the influx of, of arms from Libya, that's given them a little bit of a shot in the arm. And of course, just the, the fact that they can benefit from the movement of contraband through the area and of course, kidnapping, uh, which is kind of a very uh, important source of revenue for militants in the region. Surely you see this as kind of an unintended consequence of the Arab Spring in Libya. Is it a bad development, do you think? Well, uh, certainly for the Malian government, it's been bad. On the other hand, the Tuaregs who have been fighting for their independence for decades now, you know, have seen this as a real windfall. So it's going to be really interesting to watch how this plays out. And and from a a European or American perspective, I think probably the thing that's going to uh, judge it is, number one, the duration of this, uh, whether it remains a separate state or whether there's some sort of eventual negotiation uh, that's going to, to allow the Tuareg right to remain part of Mali, but, but with a little more uh, you know, independence. At the same time, it's also, I think, the U.S. And, and the Europeans, I think one of the things they're going to be using to judge this is whether or not al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb is able to benefit and grow in the vacuum that's going to be opened up uh, in the Sahel. Scott Stewart, an analyst with the global intelligence firm Stratfor, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Now to Yemen and another al-Qaeda-related story. Yemeni journalist Abdullah Haider Shaya developed a reputation for landing interviews with high-ranking Islamic militants. He traveled in Yemen where others couldn't. In 2009, he uncovered the U.S. role in a drone strike that took the lives of more than a dozen women and children in a southern Yemeni province. But in 2010, Shia was arrested. Yemeni officials eventually concluded that he was an al-Qaeda operative and sentenced him to prison. He's still in jail, and the U.S. wants him to stay there. Many human rights groups have cried foul and asked to see the evidence linking Shia to terrorist activities. Reporter Jeremy Scahill has been looking into the case. Abdullah Haider Shia, this journalist, was perhaps the most prominent journalist in Yemen covering al-Qaeda on the ground. He was interviewing prominent al-Qaeda figures. He was traveling to the scene of some of these U.S. bombings. And he also had interviewed a number of times Anwar al-Laki. And so in December of 2009, when President Obama first authorized this U.S. strike uh, in Yemen, Abdullah Haider Shia was one of the first journalists to make it to the scene. And he found evidence of U.S. cruise missile parts and cluster bombs that did not exist in the Yemeni government arsenal. And the Yemeni government was taking credit for what it said was a strike against an al-Qaeda camp. Well, what this Yemeni journalist did by taking pictures and then giving them to Amnesty International and to very prominent U.S. and international news organizations was to sort of give lie to the claims being made by the Yemeni government. And he began to allege in his reports that it was, in fact, a a U.S. strike. So then in 2010, uh, Yemeni authorities arrested Shia. And in 2011, he was convicted of terrorism-related charges and sentenced to five years in prison. Now, Yemen's former leader, President Ali Abdullah Saleh, had prepared a pardon for Shia, but the Yemeni leader discussed Shia's case last year with President Obama. What was the White House position and what happened then? 
President Obama personally called Ali Abdullah Saleh and told him that the U.S. was very concerned about the possible release of Abdullah Haider Shia. And, uh, and I'm told by lawyers for Abdullah Haider Shia and uh, tribal leaders in Yemen, in fact, a Yemeni government official uh, also confirmed this for me, that President Saleh uh, rescinded his pardon explicitly because of the call from President Obama. He didn't want to offend President Obama and wanted to continue uh, receiving counterterrorism funding from the White House and felt that they might not get it if they released this man that the White House said was an al-Qaeda figure. A Yemeni court accused Shia of being a media man for al-Qaeda in Yemen and providing al-Qaeda with material support. What was the proof? The evidence, if you can put it that way, that they presented in court included some of his interviews with al-Qaeda figures. And they essentially said just by interviewing these figures or interviewing Anwar al-Laki, you are a propagandist for them. They also introduced into evidence what they claimed were communications between Abdullah Haider Shia and al-Qaeda figures saying that he had provided them with photographs of foreign embassies that they could attack and that he essentially was, was a media man for al-Qaeda. His legal team and all major human rights and media rights groups in Yemen alleged that the evidence was fabricated. Jeremy, how do you know that you have the full story on Abdullah Haider Shia? I mean, that he is indeed just a journalist. I mean, why, for example, could he get access to al-Qaeda figures when other journalists couldn't? Obviously, any journalist that says they they have the entire story is lying. I, I don't pretend that I have the entire story. What I do have is a trust in journalists in Yemen that I've worked with for many years who know him personally. And the fact that Yemeni government officials and uh, and other people close to the Yemeni government told me that they, they were just trying to teach him a lesson, basically, and that it went this far because of President Obama. Look, I, I think from what we what's publicly available about Abdullah Haider Shia means that uh, myself and other journalists who interview Al-Qaeda figures or travel to al-Qaeda areas and report on U.S. attacks uh, in these areas that we're also enabling al-Qaeda. And so in this case of this journalist, um, his real crime seems to be interviewing people that the United States considers to be terrorists and considers to be people that should be taken out in drone strikes or snatched and put in, uh, in, a, in, a, in a military prison somewhere. What we have to remember at the end of the day is that most of the journalists that are able to interview these figures are not famous American journalists who anyone in the world is going to care about. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why people like myself and other journalists who maybe have a bit of a higher profile or, or just happen to be born in the United States uh, should speak up for them because we depend on them to get this reporting. It should not be a crime to interview the enemy. And, and that's what I think is happening here. I, th- I think the U.S. wanted to stop him from doing these interviews with people whose voice they wanted silenced. And maybe they want them silenced with good reason. But then you don't go after the journalists who are interviewing them. Jeremy Scahill has been investigating the case of detained Yemeni journalist Abdullah Haider Shia for The Nation magazine. Jeremy, thank you very much. Thank you. We asked the State Department to comment on Jeremy Scahill's investigation. They sent us a statement saying Shia's imprisonment had nothing to do with his journalism. It said, quote, Shia is in jail because he was facilitating al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and its planning for attacks on Americans, end quote. The full State Department statement is at theworld.org. There's a Yemeni political cartoonist linked to this story, and the world's Carol Hills is here to tell us about him. Carol, who is he and what is his connection to Abdullah Haidershaya? His name is Kamal Sharaf. He's an artist and satirist in Yemen, and he and Shia are good friends, and in fact, they were in jail together. In August 2010, Sharaf was forcibly removed from his home. 
put into prison. He lingered there for over a month and was released. And the story goes that Shia was supposed to be released at the same time and wasn't. And recently, Kamal Sharaf has done a cartoon about Shia's situation, and I've pulled together that cartoon and a selection of other Sharaf cartoons into a slideshow. And you can see Kamal Sharaf's cartoons at theworld.org. Carol, thanks a lot. You're welcome, Marco. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. We head now to Andalusia, a region of southern Spain, for our geo-quiz. Semana Santa, or Holy Week celebrations, are underway in the town we're looking for. It's located in Huelva province, not too far from Portugal and the Atlantic coast. The town's famous for its spectacular caves and underground lakes known as the Gruta de las Maravillas. But let's stay at street level for now, where crowds are gathered to watch the processions and marching bands celebrating Easter week. Christopher Burrell sent us his postcard from Aracena, Spain, the answer to our quiz. It's no fun when your holiday gets soaked with rain. So my girlfriend and I were just as thrilled as the Spaniards in Aracena when the clouds blew west to Portugal and the sun lit up this whitewashed hill town for the first time in days. This meant that the Semana Santa procession could finally begin, and just in time, the afternoon before Easter. To the somber drums and the festive horns, men in black, red, and blue robes and pointy hats marched from the town center all the way toward a hilltop castle with the ornate religious floats that weigh more than a ton. With all that music in the air, it seemed fitting that there's a statue in the center square of three musicians, all playing woodwind instruments. The inscription below them reads, Music is the heart of life. We posted some of the sights and sounds of Holy Week in Aracena, Spain, at theworld.org. Several texting gamers came up with the name of this Andalusian town. James in Cranston, Rhode Island, Anne in Dayton, Ohio, and Dominique in San Diego. We could use a few more good players. Just text GeoQuiz, one word, to 69866. Marching bands were not the target market for the late Jim Marshall. In the early 1960s, he was focusing on rock and roll guitarists. Jeff Beck, for example, he settled into a jazzier sound once he left the rocking Yardbirds, but he still used a Marshall amp. So did Jimmy Page and Eric Clapton. The Marshall Amp was the device that gave rock its power. Jim Marshall, its inventor, died yesterday at the age of 88. 
Rich Maloof is the author of Jim Marshall, The Father of Loud, the story of the man behind the world's most famous amp. And Rich joins us from his home in Maplewood, New Jersey. Rich, you met and spent time with Jim Marshall in London, where he was born in 1923. What kind of man was he like? He was he was a gentle spirit, and he was kind and, with me, very generous about his history. Now, I know Jim Marshall had some experience in the music world, but uh, I, I gather that he got a lot of his kind of engineering chops while working on aircraft uh, in World War II. That's true. He had worked uh, during World War II uh, as an engineer for a corporation that was working on the wings of Spitfires. And uh, apparently also in a big band, and one of his big band uh, mates uh, was a man by the name of Townsend who had a, a, a well-known son named Pete uh, who gave Jim some uh, apparently very good advice at one point. <laughs> That's right. Jim did know Townsend's father from the swing band circuit, but it was actually uh, Townsend's drummer, Keith Moon, who had studied with Jim Marshall who first brought Pete into the shop. And uh, Pete had said he loved these two Fender amplifiers that he had, uh, but they they weren't loud enough. Well, it's precisely the growling sound of the Marshall amp that was the sound of mature rock and roll. And I can imagine that for people, say, inside the Soviet bloc during the Cold War, it was that sound that they really yearned for. That was, I guess, what they thought the sound of freedom was. How eager were Russians to get their hands on a Marshall amp? Marshall amps did find their way around the world, you know, and into the Eastern Bloc for sure. Certainly, you know, in the Eastern Bloc countries, uh, they had recognized the West as the birthplace of rock music and turned to the UK and the US to model not only uh, the songwriting, but, you know, the sound, the tone of the instruments and the iconography. And, and Marshall has been central to that sound and look since, uh, since the late 60s. It wasn't just the sound of the Marshall Amp, though. Here's uh, actor Harry Shearer this week on the BBC weighing in on another aspect of the Marshall Amp. And Harry, of course, played Derek Smalls in the movie Spinal Tap. Marshall Amps made it a physical experience as well. This, this sound overwhelmed you. It kicked you in the chest. It did all sorts of things that music had never done before. And that was really the accomplishment that uh, he will be remembered for. And the he, of course, is Jim Marshall, who died this week. Rich Malouf, you, of course, know the famous bit from the movie Spinal Tap where they want to crank the sound up to 11. Uh, Harry Shearer said it was a tribute that a Marshall amp soon became available with a number 11 on it. Um, and Shearer says Spinal Tap came out with an amp uh, a year later that went to infinity. Uh, here's something I <laughs> just learned that I didn't previously know. Bands like Kiss and Bon Jovi had these massive Marshall stacks on stage, but many of them were just dummy cabinets. Uh, that's true. Yeah, a lot of bands have done that and, and continue to do it. How did Jim Marshall feel about just like cranking out cabinets with nothing in them? I think he would have saluted it, to tell you the truth, because he really took the aesthetics of his amplifiers uh, as seriously as he did the tone of them. I suppose if there's a downside to the Marshall amp, it's the loss of hearing. I mean, Pete Townsend and Jeff Beck have hearing loss. Nikki Six of Motley Crue said this week that while uh, Jim Marshall's responsible for great audio moments, he's also responsible for 50% of all our hearing loss. Uh, it, it's not Jim Marshall's fault, I guess, but does the outstanding quality of loud on a Marshall amp make musicians want to turn it up? Absolutely. As Harry Shearer was saying in your clip, there's a physical experience to it. Part of it is feeling your your pants shake as the sound waves kind of rocket through your body. Mm. But from a player, the feeling in your hands uh, of driving an amplifier with your guitar 
you know, there's there's nothing like it, and there was nothing like the sound. There remains to be nothing like the sound coming out of a Marshall amp in particular. Rich Maloof, author of the book Jim Marshall, The Father of Loud. The iconic Marshall amp deserves an iconic rock and roll tune. So, ACDC, take us out today. You can see a video of ACDC in concert with a stack of amps behind them at theworld.org. The world's theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg. From the NAN and Bill Harris Studios in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Rock on. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Henry Luce Foundation for Increased Understanding of East and Southeast Asia, the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.